chapter 1. This morning I've entitled uh, this section of Mark, um, The Battle and Baptism. The Battle and Baptism. Now the verses, at least that we're about to read will not be on the screen, but the remaining verses this morning that I will quote from, uh, you, you will find those uh, on the screen. We have made it in our journey through the book of Mark down to uh, verse 9 of chapter 1. And so this morning we'll deal with uh, verse 9 down through verse 13. So let's read God's Word together this morning. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. I'm reading from the ESV translation of the Bible. I also want to remind you that we have uh, copies of the Gospel of Mark in the ESV translation at the very back. They are, it is a $3 charge. The great thing about it is you have the text on one side and you have a place to take notes on the other side. So uh, if you'd like to pick up a copy of that, uh, Please uh, feel free to do so, but do donate $3 just to help us cover the, the, the cost of being able to provide those. And when he came up out of the water, immediately, now remember, that is that word is 42 times. This is a rapid-fire book. This is, this is like watching the evening news. Uh, it, it is moving on very quickly. Mark uh, does not waste much time at all. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now let me just stop and say something very quickly here. This is the Trinity. This is, the only, this is only the second time the Trinity ever appears in the Bible. It will not appear again after this. And it has not shown itself uh, before this. Except for Genesis chapter 1. The opening verses of Genesis, we see the Trinity. And Mark is the first gospel chronologically. And isn't it interesting that Mark begins his gospel with the words, In the beginning, verse 1, the Bible begins uh, the story of God with, In the beginning. And at the very beginning of the creation of the world, guess what's happening? The Trinity is there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then guess who, it, guess who all shows up at the beginning of the new creation? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Wednesday night, starting this coming Wednesday night, we're going to talk about the Trinity. So if you've ever wanted to really learn about the Trinity, um, that's what we're going to do. Now listen, the Trinity is very mysterious in many ways, but I want to tell you something. I have really been digging in and reading a lot and studying a lot about the Trinity. And there's this part of the Trinity, like how God is three yet one. We're not even going to try to figure that out. That's not the point of the Trinity. The point of the Trinity is there's something much greater there that we need to see that I promise you that if you see this really overarching truth behind what we are to know and understand about the Trinity. This, listen, what I'm about to tell you is not an overstatement. This is not hyperbole. This is not some ploy to get you to come on Wednesday nights. But I'm, I'm going to tell you this. This is a truth that 
Several theologians that I have read, and the more that I pondered on this, I I really believe that this is not an overstatement, that if we can understand what it is that God really wants us to understand about the Trinity, it will literally be a paradigm shift in your spiritual life. It may be the greatest truth for sanctification that you need. And I believe that's I believe that's true. I believe it's I, I believe it's and listen, and I believe the reason why we've struggled and stayed away from the Trinity for so long and, and our whole focus on trying to understand the Trinity is try try to understand, you know, how God is one yet three is all is nothing but a ploy of the enemy to keep us away from the one from this really big truth that we can understand about the Trinity. That will literally change our lives. As a matter of fact, let me, let, me, let me just add this to the mix. Not only will the Trinity change our lives spiritually as Christians, but also the Trinity is one of the greatest ways that we can defend our faith against atheism in all of the world religions. So if I haven't wet, if I haven't wet your appetite enough, then I'm out of, I'm out of wetting all right, so I'm going to move on. But that's what we're going to start in on this coming Wednesday night, the Trinity out of the book of Mark. So let's read 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Mark's gospel may lack a volume of verbiage, and it does. It, I mean... This is a, this man is economical with his words. This is the kind of preacher that every church wants. You know, he can say a lot in a little. He's not like Matthew, and he's not like Luke, and he's not like John, who need a lot of words to say a little. Mark needs few words to say a lot. But it contains much volume in its verbiage. So Mark's gospel may may lack a volume of verbiage, but it contains much volume in its verbiage. Mark points out peculiar particulars that Matthew, Luke, and John omit. Okay, so look, Matthew Matthew and Luke write uh, about 13 verses on on just the temptation of Christ. We get two for Mark. Two. Two verses. And the two verses that he writes, uh, about half of what he says is not even mentioned in Matthew's gospel nor Luke's gospel. Mark is painting his portrait. Remember, Mark is painting his portrait inspired by the Spirit as Peter recounts his time with Christ. The four Gospels were written to cover four aspects of the life and the ministry of Jesus. Each Gospel writer wrote from a different perspective to a different audience. Remember, our Mark audience is is the church at Rome. They each looked at the character of Jesus in four different angles. Jesus is like a diamond. You you ever ever stared at a diamond, multifaceted? I mean, you just keep turning it and you see something new. That's the way the Gospels are. The Gospels are showing us the radiance and the diversity and the complexity of who Jesus is. 
Each author is presenting a different aspect of Jesus' character. In Matthew, Jesus is the king. In Mark, he is the servant. In Luke, he's the perfect man. In John, he's God. And that gets him into a whole lot of trouble. This is because each writer is addressing... uh, is addressing a different type of audience. Therefore, they need to see a different aspect of who Jesus is. The Gospels are not intended to be a history or a biography of the life of Christ um, uh, in the modern sense of them. Each author is selective in what he portrays. Jesus did many more things than the Gospels record, right? You know what John says at the end of his Gospel? He's like, look, if we wrote down everything that, that he did... There's not enough parchment on the planet to write it all down. When the God, remember what I told you? We only have, when you read, if you combine all four Gospels together and, and created a chronological timeline, do you know how many days of the life of Christ are recorded? 52. Only 52 days of his entire life are recorded. He lived 33 years. So, this is a small sample size. When the Gospels are compared with each other, we get an overall portrait of Jesus. And guess what? We get the portrait of Jesus that Jesus wants us to have. He was God from all of eternity who came down to earth as a perfect man. He is the Messiah of Israel, the King of the Jews, the one who did the job that God sent him to do. This is the testimony of the four Gospels. Mark wants his audience to know that good news has come. Do you remember that in verse 1? The euangelion, the good news has come. Jesus Christ, what is the good news that has come? That Jesus Christ is what? The Son of God. That is biblical smack talk in that day. Why? Because you remember what happened to Caesar Augustus, the man who declared that all the world should be taxed in the day of Jesus when Jesus was born? Do you remember what they had wrote about Caesar Augustus when he was born? That Caesar Augustus has been born. He is the euangelion. He is the good news. He is the savior of the world. And Mark comes back and he says, hey, guess what? Not a good news has come, but the good news has come, and he is the Savior. Jesus means, why, why did he tell, why did the angels uh, uh, tell Mary to call him Jesus? His name is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Christ, the anointed, the king, the royal one, the supreme one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come. He demonstrated this through the foretelling of Isaiah the prophet. We saw that in verses 2 and 3. The prophet Isaiah said that the king is coming, the king is coming. Uh, He illustrates this good news through the forerunner John the Baptist. This, This is in keeping with a Jewish mindset because the Jews understood euangelion. They understood this word, good news. And the way that good news would work in Roman culture is, as I've told you before... When, when, when they would win a great battle, when the Roman army would win a great battle, they would send a forerunner back to the, or to the town that they were coming into to announce that victory had been won. And so guess what? John the Baptist is just in keeping with that illustration that John is coming to do, to do what? To declare victory before the war has even begun. Don't you love that about, I like, I mean, maybe, I know some of y'all wasn't into athletics. But I love athletics. I love competing. 
And I, I love trash talk. Now, y'all might not think that's very spiritual. I can't believe the preacher would like trash. I love trash talk. I love to trash talk with people. Not in a derogatory manner. You know, I'm not putting other people down or whatever. But, you know, I, I like... Um, I know this is, not, this is going to be somewhat divisive here this morning. But just you, those of you that would get divisive about this, just get over it, okay? Let's, let's just use an ex- illustration here. This is an illustration. Illustration. That's all it is. But I kind of like it, you know, when my, when my head football coach down at Auburn, and y'all make fun of the Gus Bus all you want. We love him. We're stuck with him. $7 million a year for the next seven years. We're stuck. Whether we like it or not, I don't know where you stand on that, but we're stuck. But you know, the one thing that I do like about him is right before the Georgia game in the regular season, he went out to shake the hand of... Uh, Kirby Smart. I mean, after the game, he went to shake the hand of Kirby Smart. And, and, and you know what? You know what he told Kirby after he had just waxed him? I mean, put the smile. I know they beat us. That, you know, they, they beat us in the championship game. I get that. All right. Gus shook his hand and he said, I'll see you in Atlanta. That's smack talk. That's trash talk. That's what I like. I, I like somebody that will come out and say, hey, we taking down you know who next week. They're going down. You know, we come into Atlanta, baby. We're going, we, we got them. We got their number. This is our year. I like that in my coach, right? That's why y'all like Nick Saban, the other team that I'm not mentioning but am talking about. Y'all like that about him too. And listen, this is exactly what Mark's doing. Mark is introducing Jesus as saying, uh, the victory has already been won. All we need to do is get on the field and play the game. And guess what? The player has arrived. The man has arrived. So, in today's text, Jesus makes his first appearance in Mark's gospel. This appearance, like all of Mark's gospel, is explosive, and it doesn't give a lot of explanation. That's the, I love Mark because he, he uses language that the other writers don't use, and you'll see that in a moment. But here's the thing about Mark that frustrates me. He doesn't give me a lot of explanation. He just like says it and moves on. I'm like, dude, come on. You got to give me more than that. And especially if you read Matthew and Luke, you're like, dude, there is more than that. How do you, how, how do you leave out this part? But again, Mark, he's got his style and he's sticking with his style. So here's what I want you to see this morning. Jesus will show us the reason for his baptism, because we've just seen two scenes of his life. We saw his baptism, and we see his temptation. So Jesus will show us the reason for baptism and the requirements for the battle. Okay? So the reasons for baptism and the requirements for the battle. So let's do this real quick. Baptism is debated within church circles as to its method and its meaning. So we got denominations that have been started purely on this whole controversy of baptism, right? I mean, we got some denominations that say if you're not baptized, you're not going to go to heaven. We got other denominations that said, look, we don't do like the Baptists do. We don't put people under the water. We, we dab some water on top of their head. We, we've got all kinds of different views on baptism. But here's what I want, here's what I, here's what I do love about Mark. Mark is, Mark just wants to show us He's not, Mark's not into debate. He's not, he's not wanting to debate sprinkling verse, versus immersion. All Mark wants to do is to show us 
why Jesus is here being baptized. So let's first talk about the method of baptism. Now listen, we, you are in a Baptist church, okay? So just remember that. But I, what I'm about to say, I am not saying because I is a Baptist or I'm in a Baptist church. I'm going to point out to you why I'm about to say what I'm going to say from the Scripture. Okay? So the method is immersion. The method is immersion. And if you look back, look, just look back at the text. It's right there. It's self-explanatory. Look at verse 9. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized. Let's stop right there. The word baptized in verse 9 means to immerse or to put under. It is the Greek word baptizo, okay, to immerse or to put under. And then Mark goes on to say, look what he says. The baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin and all the country of Judea and Jerusalem. Excuse me, I'm reading the wrong one. And those, um, baptized by John in the Jordan. Okay, so he, he's baptized, immersed, put under by John in the Jordan. Now, follow me on this line of thinking. The word in, do I need to define that word for you? It means to go into. I'm not being a smart aleck. I'm trying to show you something. It means to go into. This further supports immersion. If it meant something different, Mark could have said he was baptized by John from the Jordan River. Which means, like, you know, if we're talking about, like, sprinkling, that he could have gone to the Jordan, got some water, and come from the Jordan to baptize Jesus. But it doesn't say that. It says that Jesus went into the Jordan. Okay, so baptized, baptismo, immersed, to put under, in, means to go into. One other supporting statement. Notice how verse 10 closes the baptismal scene. And when he came out of the water. Can we make a, I mean, that's a trifecta, right? The word baptized, go immerse, go under. The word in the Jordan, to go into. And then the phrase, he comes out of the Jordan. How much, how much more evidence do we need to see in this instant that Jesus was baptized by being fully immersed under water? That was the method that was used in his baptism. I'm not saying that those that, that sprinkle are wrong or misguided. I just believe they're missing a robust spiritual experience. Listen, I don't want to oversell baptism, but I want to tell you something. I'm tired of underselling baptism. Just like I'm tired of people uh, underselling the Lord's table. Those are two ordinances of the church that the Bible has given us that are meaningful spiritual experiences for us as believers. And they are meaningful experiences in, in how they help us in our spiritual maturation. And this leads me to the meaning. So what is the meaning of baptism? What is the meaning of baptism? But before I answer that, uh, maybe you should ask this question. Why did he get baptized? Right? Did, did that cross your mind at any point? What is Jesus doing getting baptized? Because if you look back at verse 4, it says that John was baptizing with the baptism of what? What? Repentance. 
Well, hold on, Brother Jason. I thought, you know, that Jesus was perfect. Why does Jesus need to be baptized? Or why is he being baptized? Look at these verses coming up on the screen. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 16. This is part that Mark leaves out that is very, very helpful for us. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now watch, watch. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John's like, look, I'm the sinner. You're the saint. I'm sinful. You're perfect. But Jesus answered him and said, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' baptism was mandatory because, it's mandatory, he had to be baptized. It was mandatory because there's a meaning there. And that's what I want us to look at. So here's the meaning. The meaning of the baptism of Jesus was identification. Identification. Now, stay with me right here. In his baptism, Jesus identifies himself as the Savior of sinners. Jesus was not baptized for the forgiveness of sin, but to fulfill all righteousness. That's what you need to write down. Jesus was not baptized for the forgiveness of sin, but to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus had to completely and totally obey the Father. And Jesus came to earth in human flesh... He was like us, but different from us. But as we'll see in a few minutes, that Jesus had to identify himself with us so that he could be, so he could take our place as our Savior. So this has nothing to do with the forgiveness of his sins. This is him fulfilling, fulfilling all righteousness. Listen, do you, can, can I say this to you? Do you know that if Jesus does not get baptized, he could not be the Savior? Why? Because he would have failed to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus identified... Listen, do you remember these times in the, in the Gospels where Jesus says, My time has not yet come, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. Why has it not yet come? Because he had not fulfilled all that the Father had for him to do. And that's why you have the high priestly prayer in John 17 where Jesus says, everything that you've given me to do, I've done it. I've completed it except for one last remaining event. And that would be the cross. That would be the cross. Jesus identifies with us in baptism and now we are baptized to identify with him. So that's the way it works. So he's baptized to identify with us and now we baptize people as just like that verse says. We're buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too are raised to walk in newness of life. So we identify with him now in baptism. Jesus' baptism was an act of obedience required for our salvation. Our baptism is an act of obedience revealing our salvation. Leave that up there because everybody needs to write that down. That's just that's just. Pure, biblical, foundational Christianity. I get tired of talking to people about this whole deal with, with, with not tired of talking to them about it, but, but we just got so much confusion. We got so much confusion concerning baptism. And listen, you can go to hell wet and still get burnt. 
That's the bottom line. That's an old 1980s Christian rap song. That was a line in, in, an, in an old song. You can go to hell wet and still get burnt. Baptism, what, what they were saying is baptism will not save you. But it was Jesus' act of obedience that was required for our salvation. But our baptism is our act of obedience revealing that we have been saved. Listen, in, 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 in the early church, you didn't have people come down front and stand in front of the church. And that's why we very rarely do that anymore. You'll just see somebody pop into the baptistry and we baptize them. And we don't say, hey... Y'all want to let them in on uh, being the church member? We don't. We don't vote on people being church members. If you got a if you've got a salvation experience and you're willing to be baptized, guess what? You're in. You're on the team. Why? Because they didn't fill out membership cards in the Book of Acts. You know what they did? They professed faith in Christ through their baptism. You know what they were saying? By me going under the water and coming out, here's what I'm saying. This is my public profession of faith. I will not deny uh, my God before men so that my God will not deny me before the Father. That's the way it's supposed to work. Filling out a card won't get you into heaven. Any more than baptism will get you in heaven. But that's a revelation, a testimony. Is baptism mandatory for salvation? No, however, baptism is mandatory for spiritual growth. How can you grow spiritually when you are not being obedient to Christ's command to be baptized? Notice what takes place immediately after Jesus emerges from the water. The Father and the Spirit shows up. And what does this mean? Now, this is good right here. It simply means this. This is not mysterious. This is not hard. I made it very hard this week trying to figure this out. And it's just like, hey, quit making it so hard when it's so obvious. Obedience results. Now what? What did Jesus do? He, he, he came to be baptized, right? John said, no, you are to baptize me. No, you must baptize me in order that I might be obedient and fulfill all righteousness. And the moment he comes up, what does it say? Immediately as he comes up out of the water, what happens? The spirit, the, the heavens tear open. And guess what? That word only appears one other time. This word tear open. Do you know where it appears? When the veil is rent from top to bottom. That's significant. Why? Because that's the dividing wall between God and man. There, so what was God saying in that moment? It's, it's over with. This whole priestly stuff is over with. The priest has shown up. He's done his final duty. That business is over with. So here the heavens rend open, as Isaiah 64 says, and the Lord comes down, uh, the Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, and the Father speaks. So what, what happens here is that obedience, Jesus' obedience, results in the Father's pleasure and the Spirit's power. The Father's pleasure and the Spirit's power. What does he say? This is my Son. And whom I, why is he well Listen, you want God to be pleased with you? Obedience brings pleasure to the Father. You want Spirit power? Be obedient to, uh, to, to the Word of God. Right? You, you want to be powerless? Just keep doing it your own way. Follow your own set of rules. Follow your own set of commandments. Follow your own set of teachings. You want spirit power? O obey the word. You want the Father's pleasure? You want to feel the Father's pleasure? Obey the word. Don't you feel that when you, when you are obedient to the Father? Don't you feel a sense that the Father is well pleased with me? 
Not, not because of me, but because he's being honored and glorified that I'm submitting my life and my will to his will. There's not a baptism of water and then a separate baptism of the Spirit. So do away with all that uh, hokum. That's just, I mean, that's just a whole other doctrine that's been invented by, by, certain church, uh, by certain denominations. There's not, well, you need to be baptized of water and then you need to be baptized by the Spirit. The Bible doesn't teach that. We are baptized spiritually by the Spirit. That's called the indwelling of the Spirit. So we are indwelt at the moment of salvation. How do I know that? Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. What washes, what baptizes me on the inside? John even says, I baptize with the baptism of repentance, but he that comes after me is going to baptize with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what creates a new heart and washes and cleans and regenerates the inside. That happens the moment I'm saved. That's not something that I pray for down in the future. Lord, can I have the Holy Spirit? Can I please have the Holy Spirit? Can you please and fill me with the Holy Spirit? Oh God, please do that. Will you please do it today? Get up the next morning. God, will you please do it this morning, that afternoon? God, will you do it this afternoon? Where in the world did we come up with this cockamamie idea that we got to sit around and pray and ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And though that's some secondary event in salvation. It happens at the point of salvation. And then baptism, again, is that identification that we have been filled with that Spirit. Water baptism will not redeem you, but it serves to remind you. There will be a need in your life to remember what baptism represents. It represents the new birth. Your enemy will attack as we are about to see uh, with Christ. He will come with blame and shame, and when he does, you tell him to go measure the distance from east to west. Oh, y'all don't know, no, y'all don't know anything about that? Y'all don't know blame and shame? Y'all don't know that, de- that demonic uh, activity? Listen, I don't put my faith, my salvation is not in my baptism, but I'm going to tell you what, my baptism is remembered quite frequently in my life as a reminder, not that that saved me, but of the illustration that did save me, and that is I was buried in that grave with Christ. And dead in trespasses and sin, Christ reached down and he pulled me out of death and into life. And I remember December the 2nd, 1982, like it was yesterday. I got a little help. There was a tornado the night before. It blew up Sky City and knocked out all the power. And the water was about 41 degrees that morning when I got baptized. But that experience is a reminder to me that I have been born again. And so when the devil comes with blame and shame, all I do is say, Hey, look, buddy, go measure the distance from east to west. And when you figure out how far that is, get back with me. Baptism was a monumental moment for Christ. It is the only time outside of Genesis 1, as I said, where the Trinity is together. This is, a, this is an apex moment, but apex moment, listen, are followed by attacks. If you're on a spiritual high this morning, get ready. Attack is on its way. Triumph is always followed by testing. 
Notice the expediency of the transition. Immediately we go from the Father's affirmation to satanic assault. Immediately we go from the Spirit's anointing to evil entanglements. Immediately we go from Trinitarian delight to, to a duel with a devil in a desolate place. Notice the explanation for the transition. Who sends him into this event? Somebody read it. The Spirit. The Spirit. Why is the Spirit driving him into this confrontation? This is what you need to write down. To instruct and ensure us in our battle against sin and Satan. Jesus is going through this to instruct to ensure, instruct and ensure us in our battle against Satan. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are led into warfare. We are not redeemed to rest, but to wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places. Jesus shows us that spiritual muscle is not built by resting, but by resisting. Don't miss what I'm trying to say. I preached a great deal on waiting, but this is not uh, being passively lazy, as some of us are spiritually. We are, da- uh, we are to daily wait on the Lord while we wrestle with spiritual forces. We must find our rest in the Lord while we resist demonic allurements. Jesus shows us how Satan is to be resisted and how we can rest. The word tempted in verse 13 is in the present tense. That means that the temptation went on. This means that Christ did not endure three temptations, as, as recorded in Matthew and Luke, but an onslaught of temptation for 40 days, and mind you, without food. Many scholars believe, and I agree, that those temptations in Matthew and Luke were repackaged over and over during that time. And those three temptations were basically what First John would call the, uh, the temptation to the lust of the flesh, uh, uh, the pr- uh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Satan just simply for 40 days continually repackaged those three temptations over and over and over and over and over and over again. That's why, can I, can I give you a quick lesson here? That's why just because you think you've overcome temptation one time, that you not need to get too haughty, because guess what? All the devil will do is repackage it into something different next time, and he'll get you. Why? Because you think you've got it whipped now. And then a new package shows up, and all of a sudden you find yourself caught, snared right back in the same sin. It is not a sin to be tempted. Temptation is a solicitation to sin, an enticement to evil, an invitation to iniquity, a tantalization to transgression. Sin is giving in to the temptation. That's what sin is. Jesus was tempted. Why was he tempted? So that, as in his baptism, he can fully identify with you. Now, this is what you need right here. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Listen to what it says. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things. He himself is Jesus. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
You see, in this battle, Jesus instructs sinners in their struggle against sin and Satan. Because listen, here's what's happening. Jesus goes into temptation so that he can report back to us, I know what it's like to be tempted, and guess what? Follow me and how to overcome temptation. This is how you do it. This is the pathway, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, this is the way of escape. So how does Jesus overcome temptation? It's real simple. I'm not going to do any explanation of this. What, is he feel, what, what was he filled with before he went into the wilderness? The Spirit. But guess what? Matthew and Luke give us one other addition. So if you want to, if you're listening for instruction on how to fight and win and overcome sin and Satan, here it is. Number one, be filled with the Spirit. And number two, be full of Scripture. Because how does he beat him in Luke's account and Matthew's account? Thus says the, uh, the Word. Thus says the Lord. So if you're going to win in spiritual hand-to-hand combat, if you're going to overcome the temptation, you must be filled with the Spirit and full of the Word. Or full of Scripture. Hebrews 2.17 says this, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a more merciful and faithful high priest, in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then in 4.15 of Hebrews, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So that leads me to this final point this morning. In his battle, Jesus ensures sinners that their victory over sin is sure. One Baptist said, Amen. What in the world is wrong with you people this morning? I mean, did did you... So, maybe you didn't hear it. Maybe I said it so fast. I'll say it slower. In his battle. And it's not really his battle. It's really our battle that he's fighting for us. In his battle, Jesus ensures, makes a guarantee... Two sinners that their victory over sin and Satan is sure. It's sure. That's why he could say, in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's why he could say at the beginning, it's look, it's over, baby. We just gotta play the game. Why? Because He is coming. He has entered into our world. He is entered into our sin, yet he is, he is not touched by our sin. And He is overcoming sin so that He, when He leaves, He says, I'm not going to leave you by yourself. I'm going to give you the Spirit, the same Spirit that was with me in the wilderness. And you've got my Word. Take that Spirit. Be filled with it on a daily basis. And fill yourself up on this word. Hide this word in your heart that you might not sin against God. And launch yourself into the wilderness of battle. Why? Because if you are filled with my spirit. And if you are full of my word as I am. Victory is sure. It's sure. It's sure. Why? Because I done whipped him. And I gave you the blueprint on how to whip him. And you will whip him every time when you are filled with my spirit and full of scripture.
So let me, let me just do a little ramble here that I wrote down. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus is the second Adam. There's a first Adam, Adam, and then there was a second Adam, Jesus. I, I want to make some comparisons to end here about how uh, Adam fell and Jesus succeeded. Because that's the whole idea here. He, what, what we're seeing is we're seeing, a, we're seeing uh, Genesis chapter 3 being replayed. You, you understand that, right? Genesis 3 is being replayed in Mark Chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. It's a replay of Genesis 3. Here's how it plays out. The first Adam encountered temptation while, uh, encountered temptation once, while the second Adam endured an onslaught of temptation. The first Adam was tempted in an, in an oasis, while the second Adam was tempted in an outback. The first Adam was tempted while feasting, while the second Adam was tempted while fasting. The first Adam was surrounded by Eden's comfort, while the second Adam was surrounded by Earth's curse the first adam was uh was uh the first adam believed the spirit while the second adam believed the scripture let me bring this to a close by reminding you of this atmosphere in this in this author mark is writing based on peter's testimony of jesus peter uh the one who confessed christ but was also called satan by christ peter the one who died so who said he would die for Christ, but ended up denying Christ, not once, not twice, but three times. Peter, the one whom Satan sifted, became the one Jesus used to strengthen. Listen, Mark is recounting what Peter has told him. Say, Peter knows what it, what it feels like to fall under the sway of Satan. Peter knows how painful that is. And listen to the words that he writes to that same Roman church that Mark is writing to. Listen to these words. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I need to say this to all of us this morning because we need to be reminded of it. You know, some of us this morning just believe that um, our sin, if we just had a different environment, we could we could live better for Christ. If I had a better husband, I'd be a better Christian. If I, if I had a better wife, I could be a better Christian. You know what? If my kids would get saved or act like they're saved, I, 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 could, I, I could walk better with Christ, but I can't hardly walk with the Lord for acting a fool as a parent because of their foolishness. Or if I had a better boss. Or if I had a, I mean, just go through the list. If I had, if I had, if I had, if I had, right? If, if these environmental uh, 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 circumstances were different, guess what? I could walk with the Lord. I wouldn't fall into this sin. Guess what? We put a man in the perfect environment and he sinned. And we brought a perfect man into an imperfect environment and he succeeded. It ain't the environment, excuse my English. It's you. 
And it's what you are filled with that makes all the difference. And what you are full of that makes all the difference. Be sober-minded and watchful. Why? Because, the, uh, because this animal, this, this, this beast, Satan, lies in wait, waiting to attack. Peter knew that. But here's, the last, here's what I want to leave you with. Peter not only knew what it felt like to feel Satan's vengeance. And Peter was instructing people, right? He's instructing the church now. You better watch. You better watch. I know this all too well. You better be on the lookout. And where do you think Mark came up? You know, Mark is the only gospel writer that brings up wild beast. None, none of the other two mentioned that they were wild beast. Were there wild beasts? Yeah, he was in a, he was in a desert. I mean, he was in a desolate place full of jackals and all kind of crazy wild animals, lions, But I think one of the reasons why Mark mentions that is because of what Peter says about the devil. He is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But here's what you need to understand about Peter at the end. Though Peter failed, I mean he faltered, Peter did not fail in the end. And I think this is what you and I need to take away from this because you and I can take a look at our own lives this morning and we can say, you know what? I've been through the waters of baptism. And I know, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am saved. Now, I may lose sight of that sometimes. But there's no doubt that I'm a child of God. That I'm a Christian. That I've been born again. That I'm a new creation in Christ. But my problem is, is that verse 12 and 13. That's where, I am, that's, that's where I am in trouble almost on a daily basis. Is that I find myself falling and falling and falling and falling and faltering and faltering and faltering. Listen, and that can wear on your spiritual life. Why? Because it can cast many doubts on the legitimacy of that baptism, of that experience. But listen to me. Here's something else we know about Peter. After Peter had fallen a great fall, after Humpty Dumpty had fallen off the wall and he was into a million pieces and he had gone back to his old occupation of fishing, he's out in the boat. Now, Father, I want you to picture this. He's out in the boat and he's fishing. And he sees the shore. And he's like, well, that, that appears to be a familiar face on that shore. He gets a little closer and he's like, well, that's the Lord. That's, that's the Lord on the beach. And Peter gets out of the boat, and he doesn't walk on the water, but he gets out of the boat, and he goes to Jesus. And Jesus is eating fish. He's, he's cooking fish. And he, Peter enters into a conversation with him. And this was a simple conversation that the Lord had with him. He said, uh, in John 21, he says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. 
No sweeter words could be said to someone that has fallen into the trap of Satan. There's no sweeter words that could be said to a believer who has, who has stumbled and fumbled around in sin and the devil has brought them down to such a low esteem and low estate in their faith in Christ than to hear the Lord himself say, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. And you know what I love that the Lord didn't say? I love you too. You know why? You know why he didn't say that? Because Peter's stumblings never changed how the Lord loved him. Not one time. He said, feed my sheep. Peter, get back after it. Get back in the fight. You faltered, but you're no failure. And listen, Christian, this morning, if you faltered, it's not failure. Get up. Hear the Lord say to you, get up. Feed my sheep. Get back, get back to walking with me. You are forgiven. You are loved. I have overcome this enemy. Get back up and fight, but quit fighting in the flesh. Fight being filled with the Spirit and full of Scripture. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have...